0: I was the book of Daniel, chapter 9. If you guys want to stand and read with me. It was now the first day of the reign of King Darius, the son of Assyrius. Darius was a Mede, but became king of the Chaldeans. In that first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from the book of Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So I earnestly pleaded with the Lord, God, to end the captivity and send us back to our own land. As I prayed, I fasted and wore rough sackcloth and sprinkled myself with ashes and confessed my sins and those of my people. O Lord, I prayed, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your promises of mercy to those who love you and who keep your laws. But we have sinned so much that we have rebelled against you and scorned your commands. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, whom you sent again and again down through the years with your message to our kings and princes and to all the people. O Lord, you are righteous, but as for us, we are always shamefaced with sin. Just as you see us now, yes, all of us, the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, and all Israel, scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of of our disloyalty to you. O Lord, we and our king and princes and fathers are weighted down with shame because of all of our sin. But the Lord our God is merciful and pardons even those who have rebelled against him. O Lord our God, we have disobeyed you. We have flouted all the laws you gave us through your servants, the prophets. All Israel has disobeyed we have turned away from you and haven't listened to your voice and so the awesome curse has crushed us that was written in the law of Moses your servant and you have done exactly as you'd warned you would do for never in all of history has there been a disaster like what happened at Jerusalem to us and our rulers Every curse against us written in the law of Moses has come true. All the evils he predicted all have come true. But even so, we still refuse to satisfy the Lord our God by turning away from our sin and doing right. And so the Lord deliberately crushed us with the calamity he prepared. He is fair in everything. He does, but we would not obey. O Lord our God, you brought lasting honor to your name by removing your people from Egypt in a great display of power. Lord, do it again, though we have sinned so much and are full of wickedness, yet because of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn away your furious anger from Jerusalem, your own city, your holy mountain, for the heathen mock at you because of, and the city lies in ruin because of our sins. O our God, hear your servant's prayer, listen as I plead, let your face shine again with peace and joy upon the desolate sanctuary for your own glory. Lord, O my God, bend down your ear and listen to my plea, open your eyes and see our wretchedness, how your city lies in ruins, for everyone knows that it is yours. We don't ask because we merit help, but because you are so merciful despite our grievous sins. O Lord, hear, O Lord. Forgive, O Lord, and listen to me and act. Don't delay for your own sake. O my God, because your people and your city bear your name. Even while I was praying and confessing my sin and the sins of my people and desperately pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem and his holy mountain, Gabriel, whom I had seen in an earlier vision, flew swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice and said to me, Daniel, I am here to help you understand God's plans. The moment you began praying, a command was given, and I am here to tell you what that is. For God loves you very much. Listen and try to understand the meaning of this vision that you saw. The Lord has commanded 490 years of further punishment upon Jerusalem and your people. Then at last will they learn to stay away from sin and their guilt will be cleansed. Then the kingdom of everlasting righteousness will begin and the most high place in the temple will be rededicated as the prophets have declared. Now listen, it will be 49 years plus 434 years from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Jerusalem's streets and walls will be rebuilt despite the perilous times. And after this period of 434 years, the anointed one will be killed, his kingdom still unrealized, and a king will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. They will be overwhelmed with as of a flood, and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. This king will make a seven-year treaty with the people, but after half that time, he will break his pledge and stop the Jews from all their sacrifices and their offerings. Then, as a climax to all his terrible deeds, the enemy shall utterly defile the sanctuary of God. But in God's time and plan, His judgment will be poured out upon this evil one. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the ability to just come to your house, Lord, in freedom. And Father, uh, we not only as a neighborhood or a nation, but just as a people around the world have walked away from you. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us for that. You show us so many great things and it's mankind's disease to go, let me see it again. So, Father, I just pray that you would forgive us all. I thank you for this time. I thank you for this family. And I pray that you would use Pastor David to deliver your message today, that it would pierce our hearts. That it uh, would just be written and tattooed in there, Father, for us to keep we thank you and we praise you and ask that you would forgive us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
1: Our passage this morning is difficult to understand, less so because it's not because it's filled with prophecy or apocalyptic literature, but more so because it offends us and we don't really like it. I'm reminded of St. Augustine, a North African bishop from about the 3rd century. He said of passages like this that often what we do is we call God's word confusing and obscure and unclear when we don't like it. Because we're afraid to just say it's wicked and wrong. So we pretend that we don't understand it. What we have here is Daniel gives us a prayer. Almost this entire chapter is just Daniel's prayer and then an angel comes and answers it. But most of his prayer is a confession, and you notice the sins that he is confessing is not his own sins. He is confessing his nation's sins. As Christians, we understand that we need to confess our own sins. If I have to convince you of that, I have to convince you to become a Christian because you don't get it yet. But when it comes to the idea of having to confess other people's sins or our sins as a people, our sins as a nation, our sins as a church or a community, that's where it starts to prick our consciences more. But so that's what we're going to look at this morning and try and see why would Daniel do this and what does this have to teach us about how we should pray as well. So this morning we're going to look at our our confession and we're going to look at the mercy that comes to those who confess and finally an application where we're going to try and put this into practice. But so first, our our first point if you're taking notes in your bulletin um, is that we need to confess our individual and corporate sins. We need to confess our individual and our corporate sins. We need to do both of these. Again, we we understand the first part. If you're a believer, you know that you need to confess your sins to Jesus, the sins that you personally are responsible for and that you have done. But Daniel takes it one step further, saying it is not just that, it's also we need to confess our corporate sins as well. And so before we get there, let's let's kind of look at the context of this. It begins, verse 2, as the catalyst for Daniel's prayer. He tells them, you know, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So did you catch that? What Daniel is saying is that he is sitting down studying God's word. He specifically, he's flipped open the book of Jeremiah and he's in either chapter 25 or he's in chapter 29. And he's reading it. And as he's reading it, he's learning and he's seeing and is motivating him to pray. Reading God's word is a great catalyst for your prayer life. And that's what Daniel is doing. And specifically what he's looking here is he's noticing this. He's remembering the 70 years that they're supposed to be in exile. This whole book of Daniel, right? He's been taken away from his people. Jerusalem's destroyed. Israel is almost no more. They are scattered. He's in exile and all alone. And he realizes and sits and reads God's words and says, we're supposed to be here for 70 years. But look, that 70 years is almost up. Because Daniel can count. Okay, When he first went into Babylon, he was about maybe 15 years old. And he's in his 80s now. He knows the time has almost come. And it tells us in verse 1, this is the first year of Darius. Who is ruling. So the Babylonian Empire is conquered and being washed away and forgotten. They're now ruled by the Medes and the Persians. So the clock is ticking, and Daniel's probably sitting there and pulling out his calendar to figure out how soon is this going to happen. We're almost there. Now, because of Daniel's age, and from what we know, it's unlikely that he is going to make it back to Jerusalem. But he does what he can do he prays. And so, with all of this in mind, he turns and he begins to pray in verse 3, then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayers and pleas for mercy with sac- fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He doesn't just get down on his knees and pray. He goes what we might think is above and beyond. He fasts. He goes without eating and drinking for a time so that he can be laser focused in on the spiritual things and on prayer We're in the period of of Lent right now. Some of you may may know that, preparing for Easter. Maybe some of you are fasting to try and, and prepare spiritually. But he's not just doing that. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He takes off his fancy clothes. I'm assuming he has them since he's one of the top three people in the whole kingdom and empire where he is. He probably isn't normally wearing something really raggedy. But he puts it on and he dumps ashes on his head. He's doing this. It's not just going through the motions of some ritual, not because he has to. He's doing it because his action is meaningful. Okay, you really probably wouldn't dump ashes on yourself unless you were serious, I wouldn't think. I don't know how often you do that in your prayer life. I imagine probably not very. But he does this because his own body can't help but act out what his heart feels. This gives us the picture of a man who really believes what he is saying and wants to repent. And he begins his prayer in the place all our prayers should begin. He acknowledges God and his greatness. Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God. It's always good to start by praising God's character and admitting and acknowledging who it is that we're talking to. So he starts there, and then he moves on to God's character as well. So you, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Here he's also, he's grounding his prayer, the the very basis that he has to come before God. He appeals to the covenant. He says, God, you have made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. Lord, you made promises to David and to Moses. You made a covenant with us as a people. That if we obeyed you, if we submitted to you, that you would be our God. That you would show steadfast love to us. So Daniel's prayer, he is praying to God. His prayer is motivated by God's word. He's praying in the manner that God tells them to pray. That's why he's covering himself with sackcloth and ashes. He's praying based on God's word. He's appealing. Much of his prayer is kind of ripped out of 1 Kings chapter 7 or chapter 8. And he's appealing to God's word, to promises God has already made. This prayer is biblical through and through and through in every sense of the word. But then we notice what happens in this confession. I'm just going to read a couple of phrases. I won't reread the whole thing again. Verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly. Verse 6. We have not listened to your servants and prophets. Verse 8. To us. O Lord, belongs open shame. Eight again, we have sinned against you. Verse nine, we have rebelled against him and not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse eleven, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. Verse thirteen, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord. Fourteen, we have not obeyed the voice. Fifteen, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. And twenty, I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. Israel. So we, 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 are to us, mine. I counted 17 times as I went through, of just times that Daniel uses one of those words. 17 times Daniel says this is our sin. Myself included. And that's just if you're counting the pronouns. If you're actually counting all of the verbs, because sometimes it says we and then it lists four or five verbs. So if then you count some of those verbs, it's in the 30s and 40s of the sins that Daniel is confessing, not just individually but corporately. And this should make us pause, too, because if you look at these, if you've been with us as we've been studying Daniel, we should think, hey, wait, Daniel has been nothing but righteous throughout this entire book. We haven't looked or studied a single chapter where Daniel has done something he shouldn't have done. Or, where Daniel has needed to to repent and confess to God because of his sin, or when Daniel has been rebuked by God because he hasn't been obeying. Daniel has been nothing but righteous, and through the rest of the book, he will continue to be nothing but righteous. And yet, he makes these confessions. Let me make this even a little more clear. So, verse 6, we're not going to look at all of them. It says, You know, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. But Daniel has been listening to the prophets. He obeyed. Jeremiah was preaching when Daniel was still in Jerusalem as a young boy, and he told them, hey, you're going to Babylon one day, and when you're there, don't expect to come back soon. Put down roots, serve the empire there, and honor God and what you do. And wait 70 years till he brings you back. Daniel's been doing that. He has faithfully lived that. In fact, right now, he is studying and heeding the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And Daniel himself is a prophet. Presumably, he listens to himself as well. Verse 5, we've sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly and rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and rules. When has Daniel turned aside from God's commands? Think back to chapter 1. He refused to. In fact, he's refused to turn aside from the commands all throughout the way against all the pressure and the commands. And, and everyone to the king, eat the king's food, do what we want, learn all stuff. He refused to turn aside, said, no, no, I, can, can you let us, give us a chance to just submit to our God? Verse 13, you know later, we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. That's another word that sometimes is used to describe praying and asking God for forgiveness, which is what Daniel is doing right now in this very long chapter. But it's not just that. He has continued to pray at least three times a day. We just studied that not long ago in Daniel 6. Three times a day he is praying. He is continually entreating God. And even when it was outlawed to do so, he was willing to entreat God even if it led to his death. And yet here he says, we haven't done this. So that's just a snapshot. That's just some of it. But if that is true, how can this righteous man continually say, we, and pray in this way? And we can be tempted to say, well, this is just humility. Right? Maybe Daniel's just pretending because he's so righteous. He's just putting on an act and saying, oh, I'm the chief of sinners. Like Paul, you know, not you know, not really, but I'm just because I'm so holy, I think that I am. It's much more than that. It's not just it's not pretending. He is confessing not just his sins, but the sins of his people and the sins of his nation, much like what Jeff just modeled for us in his prayer, of acknowledging what we as humanity do, is we do many of these things. But so if Daniel The righteous prophet does this, and Ezra, another prophet does a similar thing in Ezra chapter 9, which you can go read that one as well, and there are other places the prophets do this. If they confess their sin, and not just their own sin, if they are confessing corporate sin and saying, we, 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 even if they could raise their hand and say, hey, don't say we, exclude me from that one, because I've got, you know, I've got a lot of witnesses that can prove that I've never actually done that sin. Daniel doesn't do that, he says we, and if they do this, if the prophets do this, it gives us a model of what our corporate repentance should look like as well. Because the reality is we're a part of our communities, whether we like it or not. We also play some role, whether small or large, in the sins of our community as well. We have some measure of guilt. Now this makes us uncomfortable today, it's not really a popular thought, we don't like it, but it's a deeply biblical principle. Yes, we are responsible for our sins, of course. We are responsible for our sins individually. Yet, we can't just wash our hands and pretend that we're innocent of other sins as well. We don't get to stand up and say, well, you know, sure, my my nation, you know, our, our culture, they're really obsessed with consumerism and just pleasing themselves and getting everything as fast as they want and idolatry. But it's really great, you know, I'm really thankful that I'm pretty righteous and I have not contributed to that sin in my nation in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. I'm super innocent there. Now, we might not say that aloud, but we think that. We refuse to do this. And we're such self-righteous creatures, aren't we? It is not hard for us to buck up and to get defensive and say, no, 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 maybe you, maybe Daniel, not me. Not me, I haven't done that. But this text, it confronts us that, you know, we probably are a lot more sinful than we think. Our heart is deceitfully wicked as Jeremiah tells us. Our our sin is much greater than we imagine, and yet God's grace is much greater too. But our self-righteous, hard-hearted heart response is to often say, you know, I'm good. I might be sinful, but I'm not that sinful. I, I definitely haven't done that one. I'm good there. I've conquered that area of sin in my life. No, we don't like it. Our culture doesn't like this idea either. And some do to an extent, right? Some would go so overboard here, they would deny that individuals are really sinners at all. They would say, no, we should only confess corporate sin, but not individual sin. You know, maybe institutions and circumstances are sinful and make, make us do sinful things, but, you know, we can't be blamed for it. It's just what we, we had to. We had no other choice. Well, the Bible rejects that, but it affirms both our, our individual and our corporate responsibility. But we do need to confess both of these. And the fact is that sin has always had more than just individuals in mind. And whether you, you've agreed with me so far, I think this is really what Daniel is doing here in 9. You agree with part of this if you're a believer. Because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right, when they rebelled against God. However many thousands of years ago. And because of their sin, all of us here were born into sin. The moment we came into the world, we were sinners. Christians everywhere, we have to believe this. This is a doctrine of original sin. Whether we understand as Adam's our representative, or we we would have done what he would have done, we know that we too bear some measure of guilt for what he did. There's a corporate sense that we understand that we as humanity are sinners. This is one of our foundational doctrines. If we believe that there, it shouldn't be that much of a stretch to see it in other places as well. Daniel's confessing idolatry and sins from his nation, some of which that happened before he was even born. And we know, too, that God judges nations and communities. Entire cities, peoples are continually punished by God. As a community, God doesn't just single out a couple individuals and bring his judgment. Think of the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, the Canaanites, Assyria, Babylon, and Israel. And Israel again, and Israel about... Fifty more times all throughout the Old Testament. God continually judges groups and nations and peoples and communities for their sin. Now, how do we measure that out? I'm not interested in bringing out a scale because that's what we want to do, right? And I want to make sure that my contribution to this and my guilt is, is low and other people's is much higher. Uh, that's, I want to just make sure I'm good because I'm self-righteous. That's what we want to do. But ultimately, we have to admit that we have no ground to stand on before God. Romans tells us there's no one who's righteous. No one. Not one. Apart from Jesus. And Daniel doesn't pray to God on behalf of his own obedience. He doesn't say, God, I've really tried. I'm a great prophet. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've, I've really been killing it here in Babylon. Now I'm going to kill it in Persia. So I, I think you, you owe me one. I'd like to cash in my obedience chips here and you give me some blessings like to name it and claim it that's not what he does he just says we we have sinned we have turned away all israel all of us including all of the prophets and moses and daniel and abraham all of us have turned our back on you and instead in verse 18 how does he how does he pray he says for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy he just asks for mercy why, why should you do this, God? I don't know. There's not a reason. Please. Just would you show mercy? We don't deserve it. He begs. And then he continues in, in 19. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Oh, my God, please. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Delay not for your own sake. So he just asked for mercy, but then he also asked that God would do it for his own glory. It says, for your sake, God, would you do this? Would you not just do it because we need it and we're desperate, but would you do it because you're awesome and you're gracious and you're incredible? Would you do it just to show off how glorious you are? That's another good reason to motivate your prayer. But so I think, to kind of wrap up this first Point at least, I think we really do need to confess our individual and our, our corporate sins. I think Daniel gives us a model for this. I think that we have to, and that we should do this. It doesn't have to be every time. We have enough individual sins we need to be confessing, I'm sure. At least I do. I don't know what your life is like. But we also should follow Daniel in his prayer here. And we can pray and we can do it. And now we can't appeal to the covenant like Daniel did to Israel because God doesn't have any special relationship with any nation anymore, certainly not with ours or any on the earth. His special relationship is with his covenant people and the people who have faith in him. But we can pray and appeal based on his mercy and based that, God, would you just show up and would you do things so that only you can get the glory and get the honor. So we should confess, but what then? Well, let's talk about mercy. Is there is mercy. Our, our second blank, there is mercy for confessing sinners. There's mercy for confessing sinners. Daniel asked for mercy, and he gets a response. He gets a response better than he could have imagined. I mean, have you ever had a prayer that got answered really quickly? Maybe much quicker than you were anticipating? And well, Daniel got that, and he one better. He didn't just get an immediate answer to his prayer, but an angel shows up to have a chat before he's finished. Verse 20, it says, While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, and I was presenting my plea, and again in 21, in case you missed it, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel appeared. So Daniel's still going on. This is, you know... 19 isn't when he finished and said amen. He had more. He was, he was going to continue going. Don't know how long for. And then an angel, Gabriel, shows up to talk to him. You know, in case you need some proof that this is a good prayer, that God approves of what Daniel was praying and that we should follow it, here's an angelic stamp of approval. An angel showed up and gave it the thumbs up. This kind of corporate confession, it gets an angel to show up with an answer. And the angel appears at an interesting time. It mentions here in 21, he shows up in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. That isn't just Daniel writing that down because he happened to look at the clock and he wanted to fill us in on some extra superfluous details. This happened, because, and it shows us too, the temple might not exist anymore. Because it's in ruin. God's people aren't in Jerusalem Daniel lives in a foreign land with a foreign name and a foreign culture, but he still operates on God's time. And the time when they would be going to the temple to make sacrifices, to acknowledge their sinfulness before God, that's when he gets on his knees. And he looks towards the temple and he prays. And so at that point, that's, it tells us not just when he was praying, but the angel appears and it's almost as if to say that the sacrifice of his prayer and his confession has been heard and accepted. And here is God's response. So we look at what the angel tells Daniel. This is where the chapter gets, gets wild. But at the beginning he says, "You know, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I came to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. And that is a phrase all of us, if we're honest in our hearts, long to hear from somebody, if not many people. But here, Daniel hears it from the angel. It's not the angel saying, hey, you're greatly loved by me. He's saying, Daniel, God loves you. God loves you, and he loves you so much, he sent me to tell you that God loves you. And this isn't just either, it's not just a cute message from God. It points back to verse 4 as well. For when Daniel was praying to God and made confession, it said, God who keeps The great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So it tells us God is faithful and he loves those who love him and who are faithful to him and who obey him. And because Daniel loves God and has obeyed him and is confessing his sin, the angel comes up and says, hey, God loves you. That covenant, that steadfast love that you, you are mentioning and you know that God has towards those who love him, God has it towards you. Because of your obedience. God loves you Daniel. So this shows us there's always mercy. Again for confessing to repentant, repentant sinners. When confession is true. When it's real. When it's not just going through the motions. When it's not just, just repeating a prayer. That's in a, the liturgy of a service. And you, your mind is busy thinking about what you're doing for lunch. Or the rest of your schedule. When it's not just oh man God I'm really sorry. And then you go on and you, you act just the way you did before. And you didn't really mean it. Or when you just go see a priest and you know, tell, tell him your sins and wipe your hands and think, okay, good, now I can do what I want. No, it's not the act of just speaking sin aloud that brings mercy. It's admitting to the God of the universe that we are sinners and need it. And when it's a true heart-filled confession that's met with repentance, that's when we find mercy. Even the thief on the cross asked for mercy and found it at the end. And we can too if we ask and we confess truly. And then the angel gives Daniel another word in a vision, kind of in 24 through 27. And this vision, um, the, it's one of the hardest parts to understand, I think, in the entire book of Daniel. Uh, I read it kind of when I was preparing and looking through on Monday. And I read it a few times and I thought, oh man, I have almost no idea what that means. I've got to... <laughs> Look at this more and I was kind of beating myself up, like I've got enough degrees. I, I really we've been going through this. Like I feel like I've done okay so far in Daniel. I should I should handle this a little better than I am right now. Started flipping and looking at other scholars, and one of the first ones I looked at said, you know, hey, this is a dismal swamp of biblical exegesis. It is just super hard to understand. And someone else says, this is the hardest passage in the whole Bible. I thought, okay, whoo. I feel better. Because I read it and didn't know what to do with it. So that's you when you read it and or heard it and thought Okay, I kind of get it. Maybe not quite. You can, you know, take a sigh of relief. One of my favorite church fathers in the the fourth century, Jerome, in his commentary on Daniel, he said at his day, well, there were nine different opinions that great leaders and respected teachers of the church had. And he respected them so much that he wasn't even going to give his own opinion because he didn't know what to think about it. And so he was just listing them all out and said, good luck. You figure it out. Okay, So for a long time, Christians have struggled with what these verses do and how, you know, how are we supposed to under, understand it. And two, verses like this, if I'm honest, this is one of the reasons I try to ch- preach through books of the Bible and just go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Because um, we need to deal with all of God's Word, um, not just the parts that are easy, not just the parts that we like, definitely not just the parts that I like and I'm drawn to. Um, but then sometimes it forces us to go, oh, Oh boy, we kind of smack our heads against the wall. What do we do with that? Um, So I'm going to do my best. I'm in our kind of remaining time here to explain what what I think the main idea and where there's lots of consensus around how to understand this is. Um, And then we'll come back Wednesday night and I'll... We'll dive more into the dismal swamp and try to figure out some of these details. Um, So come for Wednesday for that, or you can ask for my notes um, later. We'll discuss all the different kind of ways you can interpret some of these details. But the main idea is fairly clear. But the main reason this passage is so difficult is because it starts by saying 70 weeks or 77s are decreed. And so it's, it's quite literally just 77s is what it says. So, it's unclear how to interpret those 77s. Most, um, the general idea is to take them as a period. You know, of the, the weeks is, the second seven is weeks and the 70 is years. So, that's how you get the 490, like Jeff's translation had. And so, it seems like that's at least part of it, but it'd be helpful too for us to remember okay, when, when we don't understand something, Go back to what you do understand, especially what you do understand in the context that's nearby, and then go back and just keep kind of ping-ponging back and forth until something starts to become clear. But so if we remember the context of Daniel 9 again, he's confessing him and his nation's sins because he wants to go back to the land. Because they've been sinful for most of their history. And God has punished them and punished them and punished them. So I kept mentioning the law of Moses. All of the curses. All the curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Including and it culminated in exile from the land. All those things have fallen on us God. And so now really we want to repent for real this time. So that these curses can stop. That's what Daniel is trying to do. He is, in preparation for going back he is confessing. So And they want to be able to go back to build a temple so they can worship God again. They can do things the right way. But there's a problem, isn't it? The problem isn't that Israel needs a temple. The problem isn't that if Israel could just start making those sacrifices three times a day again, then all their sin would be dealt with and they wouldn't rebel anymore. The true problem isn't that they don't have a temple. The true problem is they got sinful hearts. They can go back to the land, but their hearts still need dealt with. They can be in Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome, but their hearts still need to be dealt with. They can make all the sacrifices they want, and they can build 27 more temples, but yet their hearts are the problem. It doesn't solve their spiritual problem. They need a new covenant, and they need new hearts. So it seems like These verses in 24 through 27, these 77s, these 490 years, whatever it is, is meant to address this spiritual problem that they are facing. And so let's look at just a couple of things that are supposed to take place during these these weeks. So either during it or after they're complete. The first one, there's six of them that we just see right away kind of in, in 24. The first is finish the transgression. Two, put an end to sin. Three, atone for iniquity. Four, to bring everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal both vision and prophet. And six, to anoint the most holy place. Now at least a couple of those should sound fairly familiar to you. One, finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring everlasting righteousness. I know that sounds like Jesus to me. And most Christians do agree on this part. They'll disagree on some of the finer details and on when and how some of this stuff gets worked out. But it seems to be that Jesus is the focus of fulfilling this. So let's look at these. So one, finish the transgression. What did our Lord say on the cross? It was finished. It was finished. One of the last things that he said. He said the transgression is, is done. Your iniquity is toned for. Now, we're still waiting for that, for that end. Number two, you know, put an end to sin. And at the cross and the resurrection, Jesus defeated the power of sin and death. We didn't need to go back to the temple and have more sacrifices. Jesus was enough. And he put an end to the reign of sin by nailing it to the cross. Now we're still waiting for that final end when he returns again for the last time. And then sin is no more and banishes even from our memory. But it's the now and the not yet. Its end has begun it began on Calvary. Three, to atone for iniquity. Well, Jesus was the true and only final atonement for sin. All the sacrifices in the temple were just shadows of the atonement to come. Four, to bring everlasting righteousness. Well, righteousness only came through Jesus. And his righteousness lasts. Our human righteousness fades and is fleeting. Even Daniel, as righteous as he is, would acknowledge, no, that my righteousness is not everlasting and my righteousness can't help you. But Jesus brings everlasting righteousness. We can be declared righteous forever because of Christ and because of his sacrifice on the cross, not because of anything we do. Now, five and six can be a little more unclear. The first four are very, very good. But the five, you know, to seal both vision and prophet. this seems to mean like a time when visions and prophets are needed no more. They can, we can seal them up and put them away because we're done. And In one sense is it true because Christ has come. We don't, that's what all the prophets were pointing towards. All the law and the prophets was pointing to Jesus. But now he's here. We don't need more prophets. We definitely don't need more prophets today. Though Plenty would like to call themselves that. But still it's something we're waiting for fully when Jesus returns again. And six, you know, to anoint a most holy place. This one's a little trickier. It could refer to Christ's baptism. Um, it could refer to Pentecost. And the true temple of the church being anointed um, to go out in, in ministry. But then later, if we skip ahead to 26, you know, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Some of your translation just said, shall be killed, because it seems to be a clear reference to Jesus' death and him being cut off from life. So a lot of these things seem to have already been fulfilled by Jesus or they will be fulfilled by him in the future when he returns again. So we can disagree partially on the details, but almost everybody agrees that Christ is the focus. Now, how do we get there and how does this all come out? You know, again, that's unclear, but when something's unclear, it's really good to just stick with what you do understand. What I do understand is that Jesus some way, somehow, has fulfilled most of this or will fulfill a lot of it again. And so those who interpret it differently, it's complicated again right by the, the 77s, which that phrase should also sound familiar because Jesus used that when he was talking about forgiveness. Well, how many times should we forgive? Seven enough? He said, no, 70 times seven literally says 77s. He uses this here, which there we understand, okay, there's something more metaphorical going on. So there could be something more metaphorically going on here as well. Or we can argue about, you know, how long is a Jewish year and a Roman year and what time are we starting and when does it finish? And, well, what about the last week? Okay, Wednesday, we'll, we'll mess with all of that. Or at least some of it. I won't, we'll make big promises. But we can't lose sight of, even as we struggle over the details on this, is that mercy is assured. That the forgiveness that Daniel is confessing and is asking for is brought through Jesus. And that mercy is final. And His mercy, it atones for all of our sin, it brings an end to sin, it finishes the transgression, it atones for our iniquity, and it brings everlasting righteousness. So this, all of it reminds us, because of Daniel's confession, he and all sinners after him can have their sin dealt with and get to brace everlasting life because of Jesus. There's a promise that we must hold to. So our last point here. Well, if that's true, what should we do? Well, the application to me at least seems fairly straightforward. Well, we should confess our sin because mercy is free. We should confess our sin because mercy is free. And I think we should not just confess our individual sin, but again, we should also confess our corporate sin because mercy is available to us if we do this. I I know many of you um, regularly pray for our country, our nation, our leaders, or different parts of it. And we do this in obedience to the scriptures, right? God calls us and commands us, pray for your leaders. And he said, pray for Nero, pray for the empire, pray for, you know, leaders that weren't very nice. And if our brothers and sisters in the faith could pray for them, I think we could also pray for our leaders today. But how often do some of your prayers sound, sound like this? Maybe if you're honest, you know, dear Lord, I'm sorry our leaders are a bunch of idiots. Um, could you please fix this? But sorry, our nation's a big mess. It's definitely not my fault. It's those bozos in charge. I tried to stop it, but here it is. You know, would you do something? Oh, God, why don't you just help our nation? There's a lot of sinners out there messing it all up. No, not, not me, but, you know, others. Okay, that doesn't really sound like confessing sin. It sounds like confessing other sin, but removing yourself. That's not the we that Daniel is doing. It reminds me of those, which I saw some this week, who you know, wear shirts or bumper stickers and say, oh, don't blame me. I voted for you know, fill in the blank. I voted for the right person, which just usually will have those shirts to things till the end of time. Every president will just change whose name is on it. That really kind of sums up our view of sin as people, isn't it? Well, don't blame me. I, I've done everything right. This is other people's fault. Uh, I, I'm good. It's a simplistic view of sinfulness. You know, somehow I'm sinless. Other people are really the sinners. I've done, I've done it all. I've been as perfect as I could be in this area of God. Instead, I don't think we should do that. I think we should pray and confess the sins of our nation. We should pray like Daniel. We should ask that God would forgive us. We should acknowledge that I'm probably more sinful than I realize. And I probably have contributed to the sins of my nation more than I am willing to admit. Definitely more than I want to admit. Even if I don't know or understand how. Yeah. And we can confess that freely. We, we can let go of shame. We don't have to worry about feeling bad about it or beat ourselves up. We can confess and should because God's mercy and forgiveness is right there. Why would we not? So I, I've written out um, a small prayer for us. This is just something a little different. I want us to pray this um, together aloud. And I want us to close with it here. And, and I've taken these words, they're right from Daniel's prayer um, here in Daniel 9. It's much shorter, um, but I've just taken some, some pieces of it and I've put it there. It's in your bulletin, it's on the, the back if you flip um, your, um, your sermon notes around, it's back there. But I want, I want, we're going to do this together in a moment. But I want to invite you to, to do this with us. I want to invite you to, don't just say the words. And don't just go through the motions, especially if you're not going to mean it. Then you can just sit there quietly. But I want us to actually do this and repent together as a church, to, to try and do, to pray Daniel's prayer and to try and walk in his footsteps as he followed Christ. So the words will also be, be up here on the screen. So why don't you just say this with me? Oh Lord, the great and awesome God, We come before You to plead for mercy. We are sinners. We have sinned individually, as a church, as a community, a nation, and as humanity. We have rebelled against Your ways. We have ignored Your Scripture and not listened to Your rebuke. We are ashamed of our sin. We ask for forgiveness and mercy not because we are righteous or deserving, but because you are merciful. We ask in the name of Jesus, who purchased our forgiveness with his blood. Amen. Thank you. Lord, we thank you that there is mercy and grace for sinners like us. Lord, we are forever and eternally grateful for the sacrifice and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone that was purchased by your blood and that came through your broken body on the cross. Lord, would we never forget or lose sight of the wonder of what you have done for us. We thank you. We thank you, we thank you we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing to our Savior once more. Amen. Just a reminder before our benediction, we're having our intro to TBF class um, today. We'll just so it'll be back in the classroom. You can kind of meander back there. We'll have some food ready. Um, if you haven't signed up yet, but you wanted to participate in that, um, we have extra food. So you are more than welcome. Um, just come on in. We'll have room for you. Um, but our, our benediction for today is from Romans fifteen thirteen. You know, may the God of hope fill you with all hope and joy in believing. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.